Welcome to another episode of This Engineering Life, the undergraduate series. I'm Becky Simmons, an associate professor of the practice in mechanical engineering and material science at Duke University. I'm joined with Raina, Sydney, Priya, Fran, and Grant, all undergraduate engineering students also at Duke. I am very excited about this episode. We have an interview with one of my favorite people, Chip Bobbert. Um, And we'll hear more about him, all the fantastic things he's done on campus, and and more. So thank you for joining us. Hey everybody, my name is Fran Romano. I'm here with Chip Bobbert. He is the senior technologist and collab architect, and this episode is going to be a spotlight interview, so it'll be longer and we'll get into depth about Chip. He's a super interesting guy, so I'm really excited to get into it. Honestly, I've been looking forward to an interview like this for for years. So, Chip, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. First question I want to start off with is if you could just, like, run us through your career path since like post-college and how you ended up at Duke? Oh, the career path. I've taken a, a bit of an interesting turn, I think, throughout my career. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but uh, I probably uh, should figure that out. But I went to Penn State to study engineering. That was my goal. I made it to my junior year, and I wasn't really sure where that path was going to take me. I think at the time I had, we had a family friend that had just graduated from that program, the same program I was in and entered the workforce on the mechanical side. And he was building conveyor belts for a living. I think at the time that hit me in kind of a strange way because I wasn't really sure that that was the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. I couldn't envision myself building conveyor belts or something like that for the rest of my life. At the same token too, this was the mid nineties. This was a time where the application of computer-based design was really in its infancy. And I was really focused on that, but that hadn't made its way into manufacturing yet. I really wanted to work on the design side, but at the time there just wasn't really a way to get into the 3D computer space and move that into engineering. And I just saw that as being kind of the future, but at the same token, I was getting this very analog education that I just didn't think was going to be relevant to the workforce. So uh, I did what a lot of people do. You know, at the time I thought, well, I'll take a little bit of a gap, go do something else. So I joined the Marine Corps and I thought I would go live the life of adventure for a little bit. And I, I did that. And fortunately I was selected into an officer program, which allowed me to go back to school and finish my program. I focused a lot in that point, I think, you know, just the realities of thinking about conflict so much, I think that happens just as kind of a part of living a military existence. I became deeply fascinated in human behavior and behavioral sciences. So I changed really what I wanted to do and my focus, and I went into the behavioral sciences route. And that's what I did with the rest of my undergrad. So I focused a lot on trying to use heavy computing technologies. I think at the time, you know, this is pre the term of big data, but trying to get massive data sets and crunch them in different ways to try to understand patterns of behavior and human decision-making and a lot of the things that are now evolving into behavioral economics. Once I graduated with that, I never lost my interest in in design and uh, 3D tool work. At the time, too, this was also the dot-com era. So this was a point in time where salaries were exorbitant relative to the amount of computing skills that were actually required. So I did participate in the dot-com kind of boom and subsequent bust. And at that point of the bust, I entered into the sort of working at a, at a university and more on the media production 3D side. I've still maintained that passion for 3D modeling. 
that led to a career in media. And I worked there as a director of that department for about 10 years. I did well there. I won what would be our Employee of the Year Award (laughs) and all of that. And I think that that led to some recognition, that led to some conversations and projects at Duke. Positioned opened at Duke to manage our media labs, some of our media efforts here. So I thought, well, you know, good time to transition. It was really hard to move away. The university I was at was by the beach. It was hard to move away from the water. I had picked up a really bad surfing habit. But anyway, we moved inland and landed here at Duke. So there was Duke's media program is a little bit different than what I was used to. We had a very film school type of program at the previous university. And there was a lot of FX. There was a lot of 3D modeling. There was a lot of those things that I was really passionate about. And I decided to add 3D printers to our media lab at the time. And just as a way to express yourself, you know, some of the creations that you're designing, the things that you're building in 3D Studio Max or Blender or Maya, or, you know, you could, you could, you could build those and, and have a physical representation of that. There were a lot of engineering students that found those 3D printers pretty quickly. And I decided that the way to address the busyness of those printers was to simply add more, kind of the same way that we had done with editing stations and other 3D modeling kind of things that were happening on the digital backend adding more stations, more studios, more software until the needs met. So it wasn't a very complicated formula. But here we are. We have about 120 3D printers in our ecosystem at this point. And the need's still not met. <laughs> but along the way, the Innovation Collab was something that was kind of happening to the side. We outgrew the Media Labs, so I started in another lab called the Innovation Studio. That innovation studio was really focused on digital fab as its own space, as not just a room that was bolted onto media labs, but as something that was kind of its own entity. At the same token, you know, the family business is a shop. Uh, my, my father works in building mechanical and refrigeration and I've been around mills and machinery and, you know, I've been a shop rat my whole life. So this was like this strange intersection for me that kind of brought all of these experiences together, this heavy passion and sort of self-induced training toward uh, 3D modeling, 3D design, this uh, old school, you know, milling shop machinist kind of thing that I had going on throughout my entire youth. And then putting this into a lab that really focuses on uh, innovation and development. So that's how we got to where we're at. So we had merged the Innovation Collab, which was something that was really focused on programming and coding that was addressing a lot of the paradigm shifts that were happening in the kind of web 2.0 era. So this, you know, the rise of social media and things, a lot of these entrepreneurs were saying things like, you know, I was able to do this at the university I was at, but I had to skirt all of the regulatory mechanisms inside of the university to be able to be innovative in this way. And the CoLab was a separate program that was existing to kind of say, how do we institutionalize this innovation more so than being, you know, the thing that they have to overcome? Let's be the thing that enables this. What year is this? Um, so this was circa, so I think the CoLab started about 10 years ago. At this point, this was circa 2010-ish, 2010 to 2012. So at what point that it began, that it was an idea and a thing. It actually ended up with a colleague of mine, Michael Faber, who happened to be just a cube mate of mine. We shared a cubicle wall together. So he had been working on this project and I was working on my innovation studio project. And just through the over the fence of making air quotes conversations that he and I used to have, we realized that a lot of our constituency was the same. That a lot of the people that were um, working through his programs were also people that were coming into this innovation studio and working there. So it it didn't take long for us to kind of figure out we should combine forces, uh, combine resources and work together toward building and developing this. And that's what has evolved into the full 
cool CoLab suite of programs. So we still today have, you can look at our website and see the lineage kind of as it's broken out, organized. You can see our Roots program, which is the training and the software to help people get their ideas off the ground. You can see the studio spaces that are obviously the kind of a thing we're known for is the physical, you know, place you can come and be in the CoLab, if you will. Wow, that was great. Yeah, it's a cool story. It's a cool, it's a cool, cool, cool background. And I didn't realize it's how the collab started. I was going to get into the yeah. collab origin story. I'm curious how the vision changed over time and how like the thoughts on how the collab can serve students has changed since mm. those like early days. Maybe like if I could answer that backwards for a second. So what are the ways that it hasn't changed? So I think a lot of the collab was, you know, obviously like a play on the word collaborate, but it's also a play on the kind of concept of co-curricular education, which is a thing that I'm passionate for. I went back to grad school um, along the way when I was at the previous university. And after a couple of years there, I developed a passion for education and working with students. So I focused all of my graduate work into that. So I picked up an MS ed to kind of learn how to build programming across curriculum that I think was best tailored for the students. So the co-curricular portion of this was always the area that I was most interested in. And it doesn't really have a Wikipedia page um, yet. I hope to be um, maybe a driving force in, in standardizing that term. But um, this is really you know all about the education that happens alongside of the things that you are formally learning. You come to a university, you're presented with a curriculum, and you check these boxes for these steps, these classes that you take that result in an education. And maybe some of those classes that you take are things that you're wildly interested in, like I was, or maybe as I learned in my own educational journey, there are things that you are going to take that you are just not interested in at all, or there is an overarching direction of the things that you're taking that may not be where you want to end up. So there's a lot of education that happens outside of those classes, though. There's a lot of projects. I know I've seen you in the lab working on just tons of different things through the years from startup ideas to other little just gadgets that you've created. And we see that with tons of other people. You know, what happens if you remove the constraints following those checkbox requirements and allow people to kind of explore their own passions in a safe space? And that's what really co-curricular learning is about. So that's what we embrace here. Um, there's no, you don't have to have a reason to be in the collab. And I think that that's one thing that makes us very different from other universities is that we are, we're not bolted into any specific program. You don't have to be an engineering student to be here. You don't have to be a visual arts student to be here. You don't, you can come in, come one, come all and work on the things that you are passionate about. And perhaps some of those things will influence you beyond just the regular, you know, following that yellow brick road of learning that has uh, been traditional to academics. I think in what ways has it changed? That's the ways that it hasn't changed. That is the following and staying true to that co-curricular concept is something we've been ironclad with. That's been unwavering. I think in what ways have we changed? It's market-based thinking. You know, we think about the students that we are addressing as our customers, which isn't really always the best model, but sometimes it helps to kind of clarify things. What do they want? You know, if this were a restaurant, you know, what do they want to eat? You know, maybe hamburgers are out of vogue and they want to have avocado toast. You know, we should be serving that. You know, we yeah. should adjust our requirement. We should adjust the product that we are putting out there to match what they want to consume. So a lot of things have changed. So if you think about technology training, you know, 
our program was initially our training department that was kind of pulled into this. So they used to do things like train people how to use, you know, Microsoft Word and things like that. There was a time where that was revolutionary that we were offering that. People don't need that anymore. People know how to use it. You know, the products have changed. Things like Google Docs have really simplified the needs. Do you need all the buttons that are in Word? You know, maybe you could just go to this agile cloud-based platform. So those are kind of the things that we've done. We have made those adjustments and course corrections, I think a lot within our training program roots as to what we're offering. We've certainly made a ton of adjustments inside of our physical labs. Initially, you know, when we start, when we launched the Innovation Studio, I think eight years ago at this point, most people hadn't seen the 3D printer before. They came in and it was like magic. It was just, you know, they didn't see the filament on the back, but in their mind, it was making something out of nothing. It was just a miracle. And, you know, now we give high school students tours and let them come and visit the space. And we're like, you know, who's seen a 3D printer before? And 100% of them raised their hand. You know, who's used it before? Probably like 90% of them have raised their hand. So it's something, you know, I wonder at what point it's going to just become something thing that's so universal that people just have it they've experienced it and at that point too what's the next thing that we can provide you know what's the next emerging technology that's going to be important to education and how do we provide access to that For my own personal sake, I just want to know the timeline of the tools that are in the back room. Oh, the timeline of the tools in the back room. It might be helpful to kind of explain maybe just the general model of it. So there's a con, there's a cool Wikipedia page for it for anybody that's following along. There's a concept of digital modeling and fabrication. So, you know, along the way, as, as I mentioned in my own kind of journey, where I have learned a lot about, you know, this started with digital modeling and things like that. CNC machines have been around forever. They've, you know, it's, as far as I know, it's the oldest cheat code that the language the powers that is the oldest continually used programming language that I can think of it's been around since the early 60s I don't know of anything that beats that but nevertheless, this really combined the functionality of that, as I mentioned in my journey, this combined that take a model that you've designed in your computer, and you're not just writing code for it, the machine is writing the code for you that executes it. So anyway, it's worth reading that digital modeling and fabrication kind of uh, Wikipedia page to understand that. But our approach to this has been providing those tools that are kind of enumerated within that digital modeling and fabrication concept. So providing the CAD tools on the front end in the computer lab space, that's probably evolving with the bring your device model, everybody's got a laptop and a computer at this point. So the question becomes, how do we make the installations or access to those softwares just universal, you know, make them completely ubiquitous. So you can just go to a cloud tool. So something like Onshape is a perfect example of what we'd like to see in the future because everybody can just get there and use it. And there's great training for that. As to the tools in the backspace, so once you have your design, other robotic tools include the laser cutters. Those are obviously very popular. CNC machines have existed forever. They predate within the industry laser cutters, but we had purchased our CNC machines slightly after the laser cutters, I think, uh, but maybe only a few months. Most of this stuff would happen at a pretty similar time. The thing that's a little bit different is probably the water jet cutters. There really were no desktop water jet cutters. These typically were, you know, machines that were several hundred thousand dollars. They required their own room, their own heavy safety requirements and things like that. But we really have only seen prototyping level water jet cutters evolve in the last three to four years. So as soon as a viable product came out, there were really two on the market, the Wazer and the Protomax. We opted to go with the Protomax just because they had a pathway to bigger versions of the machines. 
should we go down that road? And then we put those into place. And they become my favorite tool pretty quickly because yes, they're so fast <laughs> to use, so easy to use, and they're just, they cut anything. There's yeah. no constraints like, like with a laser cutter. I feel like with a laser cutter, it's like I can only work with one of five or six different materials and, you know, it can only cut something that's so thick. The water jet cutter doesn't care about the material or the thickness, and it's much faster than the traditional CNC mills. Yeah, I'm actually using them all day today for our, our pop-out Heelys oh, product there design. There you go. They're a really yeah. fast way to prototype something. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, they're great. The thing I wanted to get into was the difference between like the visionary, the goals of the collab and like what you see really happening and how you like go to address something you start so that it like continues to go towards this goal. Kind of what I'm trying to get at is yeah. like, I know there's a lot of programs to bring in students who aren't typically seen in the collab in the mm -hmm. collab mm -hmm. and kind of just the thought process behind things. Yeah, like yeah. We think, and obviously I've, I've got a heavy bias toward this, but I, I think that the collab, kind of what's happening here is addressing a few different paradigm shifts. So I think that this is, there's a paradigm shift that is happening in the prototyping world, which, you know, you can think of maker spaces as being kind of a subsect of that the modern shop, if you will, or the extension of boutique design. So I think a lot of the things that are happening there in terms of the changes are the cost of the tools. So in you know my father's shop, we were seeing tools that were just tens of thousands of dollars that now were, our CNC mill, I think was $6,000 when we purchased it just for open numbers. So you get an idea of where things are. This is like a factor of 10 cheaper than what we used to be able to buy things for. So what does that mean? And why am I bringing it up in terms of like making this relevant for every Everybody. The cost of product design, cost of development, the cost of prototyping, the cost of taking an idea from existing in your head to something that is in your hand that you can show an investor is so much cheaper and so much faster than it used to be. When I was in college, I was buying licenses of SolidWorks for $3,500. You can get an educational copy of it for $60 now. Working in the media world, I was buying the Adobe Suite for $1,800. You get it for free now as part of your enrollment here. On Shape, powerful CAD tools are free. Just the cost of producing something is so much less and the barriers are so reduced. And that's great for engineers, but that's also great for other people that are working in the product development space. There's so many people outside of this that may not understand that this is relevant for them. If you are a business major, you should be understanding how all of these changes to this industry, these paradigm shifts that we're seeing can impact those things. You need to understand that it's going to cost your R&D team a lot less if you do something a certain way or embrace these technologies. So you should be here. You should be thinking about it, watching this and understanding it. If you work in on the, the visual side of things or the creative side of things, what was the last time you bought a boring product that didn't have a snazzy Kickstarter video? You know, if you're launching something, you have to be able to produce these. Or if you buy something that has a really crappy brochure, you know, do you really want that product? We see the difference that is made by awesome packaging and awesome product placement, you know, like the iPhone. The amount of effort and energy they put into the box that the iPhone goes into is astonishing. But you can think about those things now from the visual side. You can use products like Cadasio and take your 3D design and then draw like crazy interesting documentation with, for that very easily. So it may not be readily apparent why you would want to be involved in this if you're a visual arts person. But in my mind, the connections are there and pretty clear. I think it's going to be interesting to see those, hopefully those changes start to click in the minds of people sooner rather than later. And we start to see those majors drift in. 
I think engineering, it's obvious. If I build this in a 3D printer, it's much faster. My life is much easier. Therefore, I will pursue endeavors using 3D printers or CNC mills or something like that. But um, maybe people don't necessarily see that in those other disciplines yet. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of students don't know where the collab is or what like mm-hmm. outside of Pratt it's like mm-hmm. what what is what is going on in the yeah, lab over yeah. there so so the collab i think it's probably most important to understand that the collab is you know us having this physical space that's really only existed about half of the time our program has been around I think it's really useful to people first and foremost to understand that the CoLab is a program. It's not a room. It's a collection of great people. We've got a staff of eight of this point that are people that have been curated and are passionate, are experts in both their disciplines and fields, but also passionate about teaching and learning and co-curricular activities. So it's a lab. It's a, it's a, it's a, an ecosystem of people and suites of products from our training program to our grants programs to also our studios, which people tend to think of us for because they think of it as a physical space, but that's just one small part of what we do. As to the physical space itself and what's going on over here, you know, it's certainly, uh, we love having people come in and hang out. There's social areas inside of our space that are really cool. The whole center of our space is actually a social area. I think what's really interesting about this paradigm shift is the potential interdisciplinary crossovers. So it's wild to think about what might happen if when the engineering student bumps into the doctor and bumps into the, you know, the talented artist and don't, you know, what what do they create? You mm-hmm. know, do we create a prosthetic that doesn't look like, you know, some kind of cyborg thing that actually lines up with curvatures that we're used to seeing of the body or, you know, what are the other crazy potential things? It's just something off the top of my head that could potentially happen. But I, I love those happy collisions. Uh, they're so unpredictable. It's hard to imagine what they might be, uh, but some of the results that we've seen have just been wild. Yeah, and they do actually happen. The, yeah, so many of them. Yeah, it's it's crazy to to see. You know, we have we have people just crossing discipline lines um, all the times, and it's cool too because going back to the co-curricular model, they're crossing lines. They're only here because they're interested in being here. There's that's the cool thing to think about the collab. There's no requirement to be here whatsoever. There's no assignment. Um, there's nothing on a syllabus that's like you have to come do a thing yeah, um, yeah. that's here. So if you see people that are in the collab, it's because they want they purposefully made an effort to be here. They want to be here. They're passionate about something that caused that drove them to come and sit in the lab and work on it. Where they picked, even if it is academic, they picked a project that they're passionate and interested in, and that has driven them to be here. So if you find three or four people that have something similar, they it's like magnets they just yeah. kind of like start that's how most of met yep most an old host of the podcast actually him and i do all our projects together and we met because we kept running into each other at the collab and it got to a point where it was like okay i see you here every day what are you doing yeah, here exactly exactly yeah you just start meeting people and yeah those collisions are crazy mm-hmm The last thing I want to chat about is kind of what the next steps for you are. Yeah. So this has been interesting. It's been a wild journey. I've been working on these projects for about 10 years, and I think we have reached really close to a stable state. So it's been, you know, for a period of time, the campus makerspace existed in my office, you know, so... 
it's been really cool to kind of see the growth of it out of that and into what it has become. And I think that, uh, again, I'm a little bit biased, but Duke is at the forefront of this. I think through the efforts that have been here myself, but a lot of other people too, we've been recognized in Newsweek, for example, they rank the top universities. They rank the top maker universities for the first time last year, and we're on the top 50 list. So that means that um, there's a big poll that was sent out. I think it was sent out to about 10,000 people. I think the respondents, you know, so it's interesting to think that the group of peers of our tribe, if you will, of folks that are working inside of this space have selected us as being lead. And, you know, for me personally, my journey at Duke is coming to an end soon. So at the end of the the school year, I'll be moving to uh, another organization that's focused on philanthropy and educational change. And the idea is that I'm really hoping that we can take these co-curricular concepts and the overarching program itself and start to help other universities implement similar things around their campus. So I think that we've learned a lot here. You know, we've been recognized as elite among our peers, and I'm hoping that this is the change that I could bring to higher education at large. I hope my journey brings me back to Duke at some point. I think that this is going to be a crazy intense period of time, but I really see this as a model for what can be done. As far as the collab itself, I think we've reached a plateau on the co-curricular side of things on the academic interface. I think we've done a lot to improve the undergraduate experience. I think we've the Chronicle listed us, keeps us on the list of 10 things you must do before you graduate Duke is to come to the collab and do something. I think that these changes, though, this paradigm shift that I mentioned a little bit ago is going to be really useful for researchers as well, for researchers and clinicians. So I think examples of that might be something like prosthetics. This is a very complicated and drawn out process to produce these. But if we bring some of these desktop robotic concepts and some of these uh, new softwares that are becoming available that are extremely agile into the mix, what happened? Are we able to produce these faster, cheaper? Does that improve the lives of patients? But I think it does. And the question then from there becomes, do we need different equipment? Do we need better equipment, more professional equipment? And I think the answer to that is, is obviously yes. So we've been working on a concept that we call CoLab Pro for CoLab Prototype, but a little bit of a play on addressing that professional research clinician side of, of Duke. So obviously this is an R1 university. You know, the teaching and learning aspects are a huge part of what we do, but research is also a huge part of what we do. And one of the things that makes Duke so special is, is the health system that we have bolted onto this too, that it, in the, the School of Medicine. And that allows us to really explore that the health impact of some of the things. So we can not only research on but then we have this great group of, of colleagues that we can kind of work with when there's applications that are clinical. So I, I see a need to develop the next level, the higher level of tools that are coming in. And we do have some of those now. So when you come into the CoLab, you look through the window and there's this room of uh, crazy looking 3D printers in the back that all have different advantages and disadvantages that produce these wild uh, things. So some examples of that might be cool to link to the story of the, uh, the stories page of what we do at the Children's Hospital where we produce parts for surgical planning. And that is so every complex cardiatric case that comes into the Children's Hospital we 3D print that child's heart using a very, very high-end medical grade 3D printer. And the surgeons then use this and the cardiologists use this as part of their planning process now. So something like that is leading to paradigm shifts, just not in our own industry, but paradigm shifts in healthcare. This is leading to, you know, a change in the standard of care. You know, this isn't just produce an x-ray anymore as the product. There's a future where we're going to produce a physical model. You know, there's a future where we may do simulated surgery 
surgeries on the actual patient's anatomy before they ever go in for the real project. There's a future where for training purposes, we can train new doctors on a specific case. You don't have to just read about it in a book. Here's the model. It simulates tissue, you know, do it. Let's see if you can figure it out and you can, you can work through it. So. I think all of those things are possible. And I think that CoLab Pro concept, I think, is being embraced. I think we're currently working through the business constructs of where we were at the beginning of the CoLab. How do we fund it? How do we staff it? How do we grow it? How do we get the right people involved with it? And I think we have an amazing foundation with that already. You can see the products that are and, and things that are there. We're already doing these things with the Children's Hospital and many other aspects of many other programs over in Duke Health. So, you know, I think that that's the future. I think that will probably be the next thing. I think we're close to having a stable state to launch really great programs out of that. Really glad you touched on the hospitals because I know that's a huge part of the collab and the things that go on here. I could keep talking to you for like two hours. Yeah, honestly, yeah. like there's there's so much that goes involved in the collab, and from the bottom of my heart, I cannot express how thankful I am oh, thank for you. this. And this is me on behalf of everyone who comes to the collab. This entire like podcast team, yeah. every Mackie I've ever talked to, the collab has had such a profound impact on my Duke experience and my four years here, and the things I do day to day, the things that I will do post grad. So like. Genuinely, I can't thank you enough for well, what I appreciate that. that, that that's cool. touching. I, I have to say that, you know, this transition, I know we were talking about it, before, you know, in our kind of warm up chat um, to the interview, but I think those that are here and, you know, I could definitely say it for myself, it's working with students. It's just such a rewarding thing. It is so hard to think about transitioning somewhere else. I, I, I put less time into thinking about purchasing my house or, <laughs> you know, my wife and I, whether we were going to have kids or, you know, all of these other major life decisions, this idea of transitioning away from the collab to help other universities build out similar concepts. This was such a hard decision for us. I think more than anything else, we're going to, I'm going to miss the students. I'm going to miss spending time and working with them. Those are just being able to influence, you know, young minds and where they're going to go in the directions that they take in life. There's no greater way to impact change in the world. And I think, you know, a lot of the things that we're seeing in uh, the world right now, I certainly wish they would have had better mentors along the way. Maybe the world would be in a little better state. So, but um, thank, thank you for being open to, to influence and having the open mind come here. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for this interview. Thank you for everything you've done. And uh, we're, I'm really happy we were able to chat before the end of the season. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to check back in two weeks when we'll be choosing between two different episodes to air, either learning about Quad X and its academic implications on all undergraduates, or speaking with a vast array of seniors about their Duke experiences.